If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11, tonight, verse 7. And you may also want to turn to Genesis chapter 6. Because as we are studying in Hebrews chapter 11, we're learning about Christian faith, about saving faith from our forefathers in the faith. Uh, And in this section, even the patriarchs before the flood. We have considered Abel and Enoch, tonight Noah. Two weeks ago in Hebrews 11 verse 4, we looked at uh, this, that by faith Abel worshipped God. And then last week in verses 5 and 6, by faith Enoch walked with God. Tonight at verse 7, by faith Noah witnessed for God. About salvation and about judgment to his family and to the world. Let me invite you to consider that this evening. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. Not only the faith of Noah, but your own faith. Let's think about these things. This is the Word of God. Hebrews 11, verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. This is the word of God. Let's look to him in prayer. Father in heaven, grant that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. So be our teacher, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be asleep at midnight and receive, if you're in the Salem Springs early warning system, uh, multiple automated computer-generated text message warnings, voice mail warnings, email warnings of tornadoes seen or possibly likely to be seen. And each warning, I suppose if you don't work your phone right, your phone makes a beep or a cheep and might very well disturb your sleep. And you can get up, I suppose, and Uh, Check your phone or a TV and look for tornado warnings. You can track the weather maps and weather apps and see the, the storm systems, whether they're rotating and they're getting closer or not. The intersections of air masses can be explained to you on video screens. And some will heed the warnings, spend the night under the stairs or in a closet, the bathroom, others. Calculate the odds, gauge their weariness, wait in bed to see if things are really going to worsen close to home. Others may do nothing at all. It's all very visible this way if you check your screens, if you open your windows and look outside. But God's word to Noah concerned things not Seen, His warning would have seemed incredible, I think, to Noah. Before Noah's day, it is probable 
that it had never rained, at least if you hold Genesis 2, where it says it didn't rain, but God watered the earth from below as a mist came up. If you hold that that also was perpetuated for a time, and we don't have to be dogmatic about that, but certainly the warning about a flood that would kill all life on earth was unprecedented and unseen. There was nothing in his experience to make him believe based on his experience, that such a thing could happen. How did he respond? He believed the Lord about that which he did not yet see. And he built an ark of salvation, salvation that was given to him by God in God's way. And in doing so, he witnessed to his own household and to the world. And his faith is to be our same faith. The writer is writing about his faith because this is the kind of faith we are to have. So I want to highlight three or four things that we learned from Noah tonight about faith. In the first place, by faith, Noah respected God's warning of impending judgment. Go back to the beginning of verse 7, the first clause. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark. God's word of warning to him concerning a judgment that was to come by flood, it was a warning about a judgment that was deserved, a judgment that was good, a judgment that was delayed, but a judgment that was absolutely certain. Think about that for a moment. It was deserved. And here I would have you turn to Genesis chapter 6, because if you and I are to believe in a worldwide flood that wiped out all but Noah's household, you have got to be persuaded that it was deserved or your heart will say, this is too much, this is too harsh. And this is not a God I could love and trust. But Genesis 6 goes out of its way to help you understand that there was nothing unjust about what happened here. And I want to read the words of Genesis chapter 6, beginning at verse 5 through to the end of that chapter. So at greater length, hear again the word of God. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. 
Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it in the length of the ark. 300 cubits, its breadth 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side and make it with the lower second and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark. You, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every sort into the ark, to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, and of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. It was deserved because of the violence flowing from the evil of the hearts of the people. And God's judgment on evil and evildoers is always good. It's good as an expression of his own moral goodness. Asked J.I. Packer, would a God who did not care about the difference between right and wrong be a good and admirable being? Moral indifference would be an imperfection in God, not a perfection. And not to judge the world would be to show moral indifference. The final proof that God is a perfect moral being, not indifferent to questions of right and wrong, is the fact that he has committed himself to judge the world. But would you notice that though it was deserved and though it was good as an expression of God's moral hatred of evil, it was delayed. He was patient. If you actually go back to verse Three of that chapter, God says, My spirit shall not contend with man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. That likely means there will be 120 years until the judgment of the flood. 120 years during which Moses built the ark of salvation. The earth is wicked, God says. And I will judge it. And I could judge it now. But I will delay. I will wait while Noah builds an ark and testifies to not only the coming judgment, but to salvation. And that I am the Savior. Why did Noah build? He believed the warning. He had never seen a worldwide flood that would devastate like this. He would never seen a ship this big. He trembled before God at God's word. And in reverent fear, he knew he and his children and his generation deserved to be wiped out. But he also believed God when God said, build an ark of salvation for your household and you will be safe. 
And so the delay of God's judgment over that century or more is because of his great patience and his grace. But don't mistake that patience in judgment for any uncertainty about judgment. That would be a great mistake for you and I to to make who have the warning of a coming final judgment upon all flesh. Because there is coming a future worldwide judgment where God will judge the world in righteousness Will that day find us believing in God's salvation like Noah believed? Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3 that in the end times, mockers will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. But, Peter goes on to say, 2 Peter 3 verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness but he is patient towards you not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance so God's patience is a time of grace not a failure to fulfill his promise we are to believe the warning as As Noah did in his day, it is certain. Jesus said, this is Matthew chapter 24, verse 37 through 39, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. In other words, the people in Noah's day were just carrying on the regular activities of life. The the things that bring us joy. Getting married and having babies and raising families and getting up and going to work. And they were ignoring the repeated warning of judgment that was on display in Noah constructing an ark. And they ignored this until it was too late. And no doubt, though the scripture doesn't record the ridicule, no doubt Noah would have been mocked by many in his own day. You're building what? On dry land? (laughs) How are you going to get that thing into the water? You're doing it why? God told you what? You can imagine how the, it must have been the best entertainment for miles around to go watch Noah chopping down trees, dragging logs, building this massive ship. People thought he was crazy. Some did, undoubtedly. But Noah believed the word of God's warning. And some people think you, you are crazy too. Some people think you're just nuts for believing in salvation, believing that there is a coming judgment one day, for believing that you deserve judgment. People think you're nuts. They think you're nuts to think that Jesus died on a cross to to take away your judgment, that he was raised from the dead. So you are called to a saving faith like Noah that believes in things yet unseen, 
but trusts in God's way of salvation. And that's the second thing that you see here. By faith, Noah, how did he respond? He built a shelter for his household. He constructed an ark for the saving of his household, the scripture says. As one put it, there is a whole lot of obedience packed into that short phrase, he prepared an ark. I have a friend named Corey. Some of you have met him. He was the minister in the church in Hot Springs. Corey built uh, a, a canoe out of wood in his garage. It was quite an undertaking, and it was a work of beauty. Noah built a 450-foot log by something like 75 feet wide, four stories, 45 feet tall. Massive cargo ship in his backyard because God told him to and God said this is the way of salvation this is the way that you and your household will be safe and think of the excuses that Noah or Mrs. Noah might have had on any given day of the week week after week after week I mean this is going to cost us how much it's it's not feasible how are you going to pull that thing up A ship this big can't float in water. It's going to sink to the bottom. It's going to take too long. You're going to spend how long building this thing? I mean, you think of all the kinds of questions that would have come into their mind as as day after day he gets up and he's just knocking pegs in wood and sawing pieces. But he set aside all those excuses and he persevered in obedience until it was done twice in Genesis. We read one of them. It says Noah did all. He did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. Some may think of faith as an impractical sort of thing. But Noah's faith took up an axe, hammer, and saw and built a ship. Calvin says this, obedience flowed from faith like water from a fountain. He believed the Lord's warning. He believed in God's promise of salvation. And he embraced God's way of salvation for him before that judgment. He constructed what God told him to construct. He didn't do his own thing. He didn't mess with the details he just built it as god told him to build it and he trusted god that this is what he needed and so as noah entered by faith into the ark as the means by which to be spared the judgment of the flood so you and i are called to enter into by faith jesus our ark of salvation as the means by which to be spared the judgment of hell. Like Noah, we're called to shelter ourselves for safety in the salvation God has provided. A salvation you and I didn't have to build. We didn't have to do anything to accomplish. Jesus built in taking flesh, living obediently, dying on the cross rising from the dead. And the writer here is reminding his first hearers to not be like the world of Noah's day who rejected Noah's warning and rejected God's means of salvation for they were tempted to turn their back on God's means of salvation in their day, Jesus himself. Don't do that, he says. And Noah didn't. 
he built the ark. And notice this language, notice his witness to his own household, for it says he built the ark for the salvation of his household. I want you to think about that for a few moments. God told him, this is not just for you, Noah. It is for your wife, it is for your sons, and it is for your sons' wives. And here in Genesis, at the earliest uh, chapters of the Bible, we see explicitly introduced the household principle that carries through each of God's covenants, that the promises of God's covenant are for you and for your children, for your household. Believing parents, in other words, should take heart here To know that God was interested not just in the well-being of Noah, but in his wife and his kids and their wives and in the generations that came from him. And God is likewise interested in and cares about the well-being of the believer and their household. He wants his promises of grace offered to them. He wants them included in the community gathered around those gospel promises. He wants them to hear the truth that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely as a gift by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. He wants them to hear the promise that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And he wants us to call them to faith in that Savior. And so our aim as parents, heads of households, Our aim, as I was speaking with somebody this week about this, as Tim Keller, I think, taught me this, is that with our children, what are we doing? We are are trying to stack them full of truth, like paper and kindling wood and logs in a fireplace. When the fire is lit, there's plenty of fuel for the flames so that the fire can really work with it. And likewise... In our children's lives, when the Spirit of God creates new life in them, there's plenty of truth there to grow them to maturity. One of our elders mentioned uh, when we were speaking with uh, Heidi about her own testimony that a good testimony for a child of the church is not that they grew up, rebelled, and have some kind of exciting titillating story of rebellion actually painful rebellion and then there was some kind of crisis conversion at some point but but a good testimony one that we long for is that they grew up and they never knew a day when they weren't convinced that the lord jesus loves them and gave himself for them he went on to illustrate it this way. You know, it's normal for children to learn to walk and then grow up and not remember when they learned to walk, but just that they always have. In fact, there's likely been some kind of significant disability or injury if a person has never learned to walk by the time they become an adult and then has to be taught to. Now, they'll certainly remember the experience of learning to walk, and we praise the God of grace whenever they learn to walk. It's a good thing, and in God's timing, it's the right time. 
But what a thrill when the ordinary way takes place in the life of one of the children of the church who sitting under the means of God's grace where covenant blessings are being talked about and being preached over them and being offered to them and and where we are introducing them to believers who love them and speak the truth and love to them and where the where the Bible is read to them, where the doctrines of our holy religion are taught to them, where parents pray with and for them and show them what it means to believe and walk with Jesus. And so we bring them to the public worship of God where they hear the preaching of the word, uh, not just with their ears, but they see it in the sacrament. They've had the experience of the sacrament. They look forward to the fullness of communion with the people of God. Parents, you have no higher duty to your children than that you seek from God their salvation and use the means God has appointed for the salvation of your household. God cares about your household. He cared about Noah and his wife and his children and his children's wives. That is, that is not to say... That there will never be an Esau or a Judas gathered around the the community of discipleship, the church of Christ. Let us never presume upon the grace of God in that way. But neither let us despair of wayward children. Let us pray for them. You recall that God redeemed a self-righteous Jew who had been trained in the scriptures, raised in the church of his day, but ultimately in his heart of hearts, ignorant of the truth and grace of the Lord Jesus, who went about persecuting the church of Jesus, and God stopped him in his tracks, showed him Jesus, transformed him into the Apostle Paul, and through him gave us about half the books of the New Testament. God can rescue the chief of sinners of any age, even if that chief of sinners is a wayward child from your family. Keep looking to him in faith and praying, blessing, God's blessing upon the generations to come from you. So Noah was a witness to his family. God cared about his family. And it says he was a witness to the world. Now notice the way it says it. It says, and by faith or by this, he condemned the world. By faith, he condemned the world for its wickedness. He was a witness to the world in that. I don't want you to misunderstand what it means by Noah condemning the world. First of all, it doesn't mean that God set him up as some alternate judge of the world. Noah is just a man. And it doesn't mean he was mean. It doesn't mean he was sour. It doesn't mean he was judgmental judgmental of others or holier than thou towards his generation. It doesn't mean he was like some of these street corner preachers you find in Fayetteville or on public university campuses certainly who, who, uh, who come with their signs, scream their insults at people they don't even know, who tell everyone they see they're going to hell. Christians and non-Christians alike because they don't know who you are and only because of appearances because you wear shorts instead of long pants or you wear flip-flops instead of uh, 
closed-toed shoes, or you wear jeans, or you wear skirts, or you have a beard, or you're clean-shaven, or, or whatever it is, all the outward appearance stuff. I saw this all the time for 10 years at the University of Arkansas. These kind of preachers, they never have any good news for real sinners. It's always bad news all the time. And they don't weep for those who are lost, for those who are like sheep without a shepherd, like Jesus wept. Don't think of Noah like one of them when it says here that he condemned the world. First of all, in his own disposition, surely Noah was a joyful, grateful, thankful, peaceable man. Why? Because he knew he deserved hell right along with everybody else. And God had been gracious to him, forgiven his sins. Surely he was happy in the good news. And undoubtedly, he had become more and more like his own God and Father and begun to grieve, certainly, the violence his own and that of his generation. But his life of obedient faith here was um, not that of a sourpuss, not that of somebody mean, not somebody who was just always cutting others down, but his life of obedient faith was like a bright light taken into a dark cave and it exposed all the bats hanging there, as another put it. If it hadn't, been for Noah, perhaps someone from that godless generation could have argued, but I never heard about God's impending judgment. But Noah, by building an ark in faith, by doing this, he robbed them of that excuse. As Christians, we should remember, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. That's John 3, 17. Titus 3 says, Speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle, show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's you, he says. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. And he goes on, surely Noah, gripped by that mercy, would have been, as the scripture says, a preacher of righteousness, for sure. Who's building an ark of salvation. An offer of rescue. This offer of salvation necessarily includes the warning of judgment. But it grieves us to warn and it delights us to be ambassadors of good news. Now, I want to share a couple of illustrations about sharing your faith in this way. Sometimes our simplest Efforts are well received, and sometimes they're not. And sometimes they're well received. I know a man who invited his neighbor over for dinner just to get to know you. And his neighbor was not a Christian, but this man was. And at the start of the meal, the man poured wine for them, and he offered a toast to the creator of the fruit of the vine. And he gave thanks 
for the food and drink they were about to receive. And it seemed a small thing to follow Paul's instruction in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. But afterwards, the neighbor said, until then, he can't ever remember having heard a Christian speak well of wine. And what it did is it softened his heart it opened his heart to hearing more about the God of the Bible. And it eventually, through many other questions and answers, led to him coming to faith in Christ. It was a very simple giving of thanks for a very small thing. And sometimes our efforts at witness work that way, but sometimes our efforts are met with rebuff. A pastor friend of mine named Michael tells his story. I sat with him in an airport just a couple weeks ago, but he tells this story. I think it was during the summer of my freshman year of college that I sat in the living room of my parents' house and had a discussion about Christianity with my dad. I did not grow up in a particularly religious, let alone Christian, home. So we went to church a bit when I was young, but that got less and less frequent the older the kids got. And when my brother and I figured out how to flip the circuit breaker to keep my parents' alarm from going off, that was about it. I had become a Christian four years before the conversation with my dad during the summer of my sophomore year of high school. Though I was going to church regularly, I didn't talk a whole lot with my family about being a Christian. We didn't really know how to talk about these things. But I was trying to start talking with them more. I wanted my parents to believe. And that summer night, I sat in the living room with my dad and I tried to explain to him the gospel. How God made us for a relationship with himself. But we have all rebelled. How our rebellion deserves to be punished. But God has come to rescue us in his son Jesus. How Jesus on the cross took the place of his people. He was punished for their sins. They were given credit for his record of obedience. How believing in Jesus as your substitute changes everything. Throughout the conversation, he listened and he voiced his objections. And after a while, my dad got quiet, he says. And then he asked me a question. Michael, are you telling me that if I don't believe what the Bible says about Jesus, I'm going to hell? It's maybe the hardest question I've ever had to answer, says Michael, because no matter how I tried to explain hell as the just consequence for our rebellion against God, my dad just grew angry. He actually left the room, came back a half an hour later and told me, I forbid you ever talking with me about Christianity ever again. Michael. Loves his dad, sought to present the good news. That was his heart, that was his chief aim. But good news is only good news. If you believe the bad news too, and salvation is the best news, when you know that you deserve hell. By building an ark of salvation, Noah was necessarily passing on the bad news, and so he condemned the world in that way. But for 120 years, people had time to repent and believe, to look to God for salvation, the salvation of their souls, if not of their flesh, in this life. And finally, the last thing we see is this. By faith, it says, Noah received the gift of righteousness. He became, it says, the heir of the righteousness that comes by faith, not by works. He's speaking of the the gifting of 
a righteousness that isn't ours, but that is received by us. The righteousness of another accounted to us. This is the righteousness that the Apostle Paul speaks about in Romans and Galatians and Philippians 3. When we trust in Christ, we're not only declared guilty, but we're perfectly accepted by God. Because Jesus not only died the death we deserve so we could be pardoned, but Jesus lived the perfectly obedient, righteous life we haven't lived. And God accounts that to us. And in Him, received by faith, we are accepted. That we saw is what Abel had. That is the same righteousness spoken of here about Noah in the text. Now, some of you may say to me, but we were reading Genesis 6 just a moment ago. And it said Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. He walked with God. And you're right, it does. But that comes after the chapter division of chapter 6. Chapter 5 closed with how wicked everybody was, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That's the Hebrew word for grace. Look at the King James. Look at the, the Orthodox Jewish Bible on it. It's just grace. Everybody's wicked. Noah is wicked. He got grace in the eyes of the Lord. That chapter's over. Next chapter. Noah was a righteous man. How was he righteous? By faith. By a gift of grace. And did it bear fruit? You bet it did. He walked with God. Did it bear fruit? Of course it did. He built the ark. But it was the grace that produced the good work. And it was not good works that brought about the grace. And receiving a gift like that will shape your witness. And we'll close with this. This is a story that Scott Rowley tells. He met a guy who said he really didn't like the idea that he had to share his faith. And Scott Rowley said to him, you don't have to share your faith for God to love you. The guy left. And a few weeks later, Rolly heard several people saying about this guy, man, what's got into him? He's really sharing his, the gospel with everybody. So Rolly caught up with the guy and he asked him what was up. And the guy said, well, when I heard that God loves me, even if I don't share my faith, I just had to tell people about it. When you know deep in your heart that Jesus loved you and gave himself for you, that because of God you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for you righteousness from God, that he is your all in all, then you'll be like one poor beggar telling another poor beggar, where you found bread. Bread is available. Jesus is the Savior. Look to him and all will be well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of your son. Grant that your word would bear much fruit in our lives for his glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand.